James chapter 3. And uh, as I mentioned, we're going to continue in our study of the epistle of James. Um, Last week, we did kind of the introductory portion of the tongue, the power of the tongue. We talked uh, primarily through verses 1 through And it was, as I said to you uh, before, it is the introductory kind of chapter of the tongue and how the tongue represents really the inner essence of the person, the inner essence of the heart. And we also took a look at how the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. If you turn in your Bibles real quick to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. Here is the Lord Jesus speaking about that which proceeds out of the heart. Mark 7, 20 to 23. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is which defiles a man. For from within and out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And all these things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus also had stated in Luke chapter 6, verse 41, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And this is reemphasized by the Apostle Paul as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul writes, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the moment's need that it may give grace to those who, to he, who hear. And to the church at Colossae, he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. These seem to co- coincide with what James is saying, that the tongue speaks that which is already in the heart. I had mentioned to you last week one of the evidences of my conversion in Jesus Christ. One of the primary evidences was how God changed my speech. How my speech was full of profanities and coarseness and perversions. How if I got angry, bitterness would come lashing out, hateful words and all the others. But when I came to Christ and I was saved, God took that and began to change that. Why? Because I was speaking originally out of a dirty heart. And then once I came to Christ and I was born again and God began the work of sanctification in me, God changed me on the inside and that was reflected on the outside. The tongue speaks that which is already in the heart. And we're going to see James continue to reiterate this point. But for us as believers, it's incumbent upon us that we should guard our hearts. You saw the words from Jesus right there. It's inside the heart that evil things brew. And they eventually will come back. Paul told the church at Philippi, 
In Philippians 4.8, this is a great verse to memorize. A great verse to memorize. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Today we're going to see how James continues to address the issue of the tongue. The issue of the tongue by calling out sins of the heart. And as we had said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth is going to speak. So James continues speaking about this boasting of the tongue. And his encouragement to the church and to the Christians he is writing to is, they're not to, we're not supposed to be this way. This is not what God has intended. Now there is a good side, there is a bad side to this, and there is a good side to this. The bad side is an uncontrolled evil tongue, you'll know it. Oh, reflect the type of person that you are. But the good side is that the tongue can be harnessed when we walk in the abundance and in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I think it's also important to understand that when James refers to the tongue, he's not referring to the physical organ in our mouth, but he's referring to the inner essence of the person. He's referring to the reflection of the heart. And as we see today, the terminology that James uses in verses 5 through 12, he calls the tongue, he says of the tongue, it boasts of great things. He says the tongue is a fire. The tongue defiles the whole body. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue blesses and curses. And we praise God that through Jesus Christ, we have victory over the tongue. Let's look at verses 5 through 12, beginning with verse 5. James writes, so also, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And as we embark into this particular portion of Scripture, we must remind ourselves that the tongue could be used for good purposes, but the tongue also could be used for simple purposes. As stated, the tongue will speak out, as we've already mentioned, that which is in the heart. And the proud heart, by the way, the proud heart will be boastful. It'll be self-oriented. The proud tongue seeks for glory for itself, not so much for glory to God. The perverse heart is going to speak out perverse things. The bitter heart will speak out bitter and angry words. The sinful heart will speak of all things that are counter to Christ. But likewise, the Holy Spirit-filled heart will speak things that glorify God and are edifying to the church. Psalm 34, 1 and 2, this is one of my favorite psalms. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continue.
continually be in my mouth. I love that. It's a prayer. He goes on to say, the humble will hear it. They will rejoice. Oh, come magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is the Holy Spirit-filled heart. We come here on Sunday mornings and we come and we listen to the word of God, we listen to the preaching, but we lift up God in song. And it's my prayer, it really is my prayer that when we're worshiping God, that our hearts are filled with the presence of God. And it's joyously, not mechanically, that we offer up to God praises and worship from an adoring heart. It's very easy to get into a situation where you could toe-tap and clap and do everything else, and that's good, but if your heart is right, but if it becomes something that's purely mechanical, if it becomes something that is purely religious in nature with no heart behind it, well, then that's wood hay and stubble. Previously in verses 3 and 4, James uses two illustrations to show us what is in the heart comes out in the mouth and directs a person's heart. In verse 3, he speaks of bits in the, in the mouth of a horse which connect to the bridle, a small piece of metal that goes into a big animal's body. And yet when it's connected to the bridle, those bits, if you pull it, will steer the horse in the direction that you want. In verse 4, he speaks of the rudder of a ship. A small part of a huge ship, but yet it is controlling that rudder that will control that destination of that ship. And he goes on to say today that this little organ in the mouth is capable of boasting of so many great things. He says it is a small part of the body, and yet a small part of the body that makes great boasts. And he uses the illustration here of fire. He says, how big is a, a forest fire started with just a tiny little flame? And so therefore he calls the tongue a fire. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among the members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. A close look at this verse, James details five negative characteristics of the tongue. And we will look at each one individually. He begins by calling the tongue a fire. He likens it to a fire's destructive force and its destructive power. And draw, James draws the imagery of fire he used in verse 5 when he said, when he said, see how great a large forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he likens that as unto the tongue. He goes on to say that the tongue is the very world of iniquity. And he calls it, and now he says the tongue is the very world of iniquity. But iniquity is, it's premeditated sin. That's what iniquity is. And sin is always against the law of God. So when we hear of sin and iniquity, sin is the individual transaction. Iniquity is the premeditation. I'm going to be able to do this. I want to do this. 
And James likens the tongue to a restless evil that seeks to sin. And matter of fact, in the Greek, the, the word there used for world, a world of iniquity, it does not refer to the earth or the universe, but rather it refers to this evil world system. It's the evil world system that we find ourselves. The Greek word being cosmos, which refers to the evil world system. And this evil world system is the very source of unrighteousness. And we see here that James is very familiar with the word of Jesus. It's the same word Jesus used over and over again. As a matter of fact, in John 16, 33, Jesus says this, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, in the cosmos, in the evil world system, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The point that James is making is that the tongue is set among our body much like we are in the world. And it represents that evil, similar to how the world system represents evil to the believers on earth. And it carries out very much the will of sin. So he said it's a world, it is a fire, it is the world of iniquity. The third thing he says, the tongue defiles the body. And quite frankly, what James is talking about is the tongue can be used to do damage. To oneself, it can do damage to others. The tongue can stain, pierce, harm, ruin, defile, curse, and do a whole host of unlimited things. I'll tell you what, I have no shortage in my life of people who have been devastated, who have been hurt, and many times the hurt comes from another person's mouth. And they can ruin and they can harm. Proverbs 16.27, we read it in our scripture reading, says this, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are a scorching fire. The tongue can be destructive and hurtful. Therefore, it has the potential to defile oneself and others. It destroys and sets on fire to do its damage. He goes on to say the tongue is sets on fire the course of our life. And as we have mentioned, the evil tongue like an uncontrollable wildfire can spread and do significant damage to ourselves and to others. You know, to a large extent, we are how we speak. The way we speak says a lot about a person. And we are known by how we speak. And people can get a pretty good idea of who we are as a person depending on the way we speak. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe on your job. Maybe in your community. Let's say on your job you work among a bunch of people that are coarse and vile. And every other word is an obscenity. Or maybe on your job there are people there that despise you for being a Christian, so they tear you down. They're constantly berating you because they hate the Christ-likeness in you. And so therefore, what do they do? They backbite. They gossip. 
They seek to destroy. My goodness, how many churches have been ripped apart by gossip and little backbiting, people saying things behind other people's back. I always said there would never be gossip if the people never listened. If somebody came over and said, hey, can I tell you something? No, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know anything. You wouldn't have gossip. Case cured. If everybody did that, there wouldn't exist. Or, you know, the famous quip that people say, well, I don't want to say anything, but. Or can we keep this between you and me? Gossip is a heinous a heinous sin. In Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6 describes seven things the Word says that the Lord hates. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 6. I want to show you this. Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 18. These are sometimes referred to as the seven deadly sins. It's a bad title. Why is it a bad side title? Because every sin is deadly if it's not pardoned in Christ. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 18. There are six things which the Lord hates. By the way, if you were in Sunday school this morning and you saw that word, LORD, all in caps, Who's he referring to? Yahweh. How many times is Yahweh referred to in the Old Testament? 6,823 times. Here it is. There are six things which Yahweh hates. Yes, seven, which are, notice these words, which are an abomination to him. Here they come. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brethren. One who creates dissension. What is the vehicle for creating dissension? It's the tongue. It's the speech. If only believers in Christ knew that and really firmly came to a strong conviction about that, there wouldn't be church splits. Not as many as we see in this day and age. Now the word of God tells us, yeah, this is how the tongue can be a fire. This is how the tongue can be used. But there is encouragement too. And the encouragement is this. That if we dwell on good things, if we dwell on holy things, if we are filled with the Spirit of God, then our speech is going to be seasoned with salt. That our tongue is going to be of choice silver. In every word, that which edifies. No backbiting, no gossip. And I think one of the things that I think that we as a believers in Jesus Christ must fill ourselves with the word of God. 
And so that therefore we can open our mouth and speak the word of God with all boldness. Lastly, he says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. And the wicked tongue is. This is the continual process in the life of unbelievers. James uses another familiar word of Jesus, that word hell. And its literal definition is Gehana. And it was a place located just outside of Jerusalem. The literal translation means the Valley of Hinnon and the name of the valley. And it was in this place in Jerusalem that the carcasses of dead animals, that the bodies of dead criminals, that garbage would be thrown into a big pit and it burned continually, continually, continually. It also happens to be the site where Canaanites and some Israelites offered up their children in sacrifice to the pagan god Moloch. In Luke 12, verse 5, Jesus said this, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he is killed after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. There's that word for Gehana. I tell you, fear him. Satan uses a sinful tongue to destroy. Wrong living, sinful living, is used by the enemy and fueled by hell's power. Even believers, even believers, we are not living in submission to Christ, if we are not feeding ourselves the word of God, even believers can use their tongue to hurt. Which is why the psalmist said, I pray that you would put a gate over my mouth. He set a guard over my mouth, Psalm 141.3, and keep watch over the door of my lips. As I was driving to church this morning, as I always do, I was praying in the car for the service. And I thought about that verse as I was driving here. You know, as, as the psalmist says, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. I said, Lord, not only my mouth, but my eyes. Set a guard over my eyes and set a guard over my ears, Lord God. Because I'll tell you, it doesn't take much in this type of culture that we're li uh, living in to find areas where we can sin and sin grossly before the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. James writes, For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The main point here. In verses 7 and 8 is that while mankind can tame even wild animals to be able to perform for them and do tricks, yet who can master the tongue? I mentioned last week, right, there is this principle that if we put garbage in, what are we going to get? We're going to get garbage out. But if we put godliness in, and godliness permeates our heart, then out of our heart will be reflected in our speech words that are edifying 
and glorifying to them. In our flesh, it's not achievable. I could tell you that before I was a Christian, I became so concerned over my mouth, and I made multiple vows to myself. I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to do that. And what did I do? I did exactly what I didn't want to do. I couldn't tame the tongue because I couldn't tame my heart. And what is required to tame the heart is new birth from Jesus Christ. And when Christ came in and took residence in me and cleansed me from my sin, then and only then did my speech change. So how do we tame the tongue? In submission to Christ. In wholehearted, undivided submission to Christ. In walking in the Spirit. So we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as Paul says. Look at verses 9 and 10. Speaking, and again, continuing to speak of the tongue. He said, with it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Daily we see and feel the effects of the fall. Not only unbelievers, but even believers experience these devastating effects. James says that our tongue demonstrates with our mouths that we have the capability to bless God and to curse men. I have had the unfortunate, unfortunate pleasure to be at several what are called business meetings in churches that we served. And I have seen those business meetings open up with great prayer. Father, we come together and we bless you and we magnify your name and blah, blah, blah. Great flowery, flowery prayers. And then I've had the unfortunate pleasure to sit there as those prayers turned into poison. Brother sniping against brother, sister against sister. I've seen people lose their cool. I've seen people come to blows. All in the name of the church. So thankful. I, am, I, I can't even tell you how thankful I am. That when we come together as a church, there is such unity and love among us that we have never had. I can only think of one incident that occurred. It started and got shut down within a minute. And that's it. The devastation that they sought to do, they were unable to do. I think, to be perfectly honest, they felt kind of stupid and left. And we continued. And we continue to this day. The body of Christ is to be a a reflection of the kingdom life. The body of Christ is not bitterness. We can have different opinions. That's okay. We can express those different opinions. But there isn't to be discord and anger and vitriol and nasty words and nasty dispositions when we gather together as a body. 
There's no place for that. And I'm so thankful for that. You know, even believers, it's hard to remember, but we need to remember that that even believers can be affected. And even believers can yield to pride. Let me tell you, I I personally believe this, right? What is the greatest virtue I think that the Lord speaks about in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? What's the greatest virtue? I think the greatest virtue is humility. I really do. True humility before God, right? I think that's the greatest virtue. So if that's the greatest virtue... Just use some deductive reasoning. If that's the greatest virtue, I think the greatest sin is pride. It was pride in the garden. And all throughout scriptures, you see, when men of God have fallen, it's been pride. They've been given to pride. Now, the thing about pride is it's an insidious sin. What do I mean by that? No man wakes up in the morning and he's shaving in the mirror. He goes, boy, I'm full of pride today. Doesn't happen. But pride rears its ugly face time and time again. And the person who is proudful doesn't realize it. So what happens? They become self-confident. I trust in my, well, I, I got great abilities. I'm really good at this, that, and the other thing. And they become self-assured. And they have plenty of self-esteem. And they're very confident. And slowly and surely, what does it do? More dependency on self, less dependency on God. Paul didn't say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through myself whom God has equipped with amazing gifts. He didn't say that, right? What did he say? I can do all things through Jesus Christ that strengthens me. Paul never said, hey, I'm the heralder of the gospel. All who listen to me, and if they listen to what I say, are going to be saved. No, he said the gospel is is the power of God unto salvation. Pride reveals itself in self-righteousness. Look at that person. They're a joke as a Christian. Oh, that person believes that? What, What a moron. This is the stuff that goes on. Rather than humbling ourselves. And you know how I know this? You know how I know this? Because I'm guilty. And the many, many times that God has brought me low and said, son, I got to teach you something. You need me. And I think it's a real problem you know, over the last week, I've been talking to you about the heart, how much everything is dependent on the heart. We could have good doctrine, and we could have good religious practice, and we could live a moral, 
ethical life. But that doesn't mean we know God. Doesn't mean we know God. We might know a lot about God. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it's worth repeating. There are going to be a lot of people in hell that know a lot about God. A lot. Biblical knowledge is not the litmus test for salvation. A humble heart. Dependency upon Christ. Working through the merits of Christ. Trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ is what God looks for. And so time and time again, we have to challenge ourselves. How do we challenge ourselves? We challenge ourselves with the word of God. I'm kind of going off track here, but I think it's important. I I just want to say this. Many of you know that my life verse that I selected for myself many years ago is Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Let not um, the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts of this, that he knows and understands me. The prophet Jeremiah is not speaking about intellectual data. He's not speaking about, can you explain creation? Can you explain uh, the law? Can you explain? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the experiential knowledge of God. Let him who boasts, boast of this. See how we use our tongue? You want to boast? Boast of this, that you know experientially and you understand me. That's the essence of a Christian, that you know God. I always like to say about us that we would be a people that know our God and are known by our God. I want God to know me. I want God to say when I think of Mark, there's my son, and I am pleasing in his sight, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Christ has done for me. But conversely, I want to know God. I want to I meet God. I want to get alone with God in prayer. I want to get alone and feel the presence of God sweep over me. I want to be in that place that when I'm being tried, when I'm being tested, when I'm, when I'm at that crucible in my life, when I can barely hold on to anything else, that God's Spirit comes upon me and God's Spirit lifts me and pulls me and directs me. I want God to order my steps. I want God to direct my paths. And listen, just like Proverbs 3, 6 says, you don't have to figure it out. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Do you know that many times he directs our paths? 
through the fire? You know that? Do you know that many times God directs our path through the flood? Do you know that many times God directs our path through the valley? But the word of God tells us though we walk through the fire, we won't get singed. And though we walk through the raging tempest, we won't succumb, we won't drown. And though we walk through the valley, the Lord is with me. And you know what the Lord does? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he does so in the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, you can't touch my child. That's why the psalmist says at the end of Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. And he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, church, that we would know God. That God would be reflected in our speech. That God would be reflected in our actions. That God would be reflected in our love for one another. That God would be reflected in our love for the lost. That God would be reflected in a love for him. And that we, thy servants of God, that he would grant thy servants to speak thy word with all boldness. That's what God requires of us. It don't matter how many Sundays you attend church if your heart is not near God. And the Lord is all calling everyone to come to him. Let me just close this up. Look at verses 11 and 12. Speaking of the tongue, speaking of the conflict of the tongue, speaking of the, the dualism of the tongue, he says these words, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt produce, salt water produce fresh. James sums up these first 12 verses of this chapter with an illustration. He says a fig tree cannot produce olives, a vine can't produce figs. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound very familiar to the teachings of the Lord? Matthew 7, 16, he's, the Lord says this, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? The lesson of who we are will be evident in our speech. And our mouths will speak what our hearts are full of. A fountain stream cannot produce both fresh and salt water. The salt water is that brackish water. That's not, it doesn't come out of the same opening. It's only one or the other. Jesus continued with this thought. Back in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 18, he says this, and, and, and boy, we really need to heed these words. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He continues, so them you will know them by their fruits. Christians, brothers and sisters, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. 
I'll close with this. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 35. The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good. Notice that. The good man, out of, inside out, of his good treasure, which is stored in his heart, what does he bring forth? He brings forth good, that which is good. What's the contrast to that? Jesus says it next. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Out of the abundance, the heart speaks. What does our speech say of our hearts? Is it full of good treasure? Is it bringing forth that which is good? Is it full of evil? Bringing forth that which is not good. Jesus said, it'll all be revealed. Every idle word, every idle thought, it will all be revealed on that day of judgment. But there's hope. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die so that we get this pardon that all the evil we did gets out of the way. Christ died to create us new in him. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away, all of those old sins, all of the things that you are trapped, that you are bound to, all of those old things have passed away. Behold, everything is new. And I want to say something. That is not figurative language. That is literal language. If you're in Christ, it didn't matter what you did in your past. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. All of the old things are, are wiped away. I like the way Micah says, and Micah said that thou hast taken my sin and cast it in the depths of the sea. What's the implication? To be remembered no more. When God looks at at a man, he doesn't go, there goes my friend Sam. Sam is a former drug addict, and he's a former thief. He has a criminal record. He has eight felonies. He did time in prison. He doesn't say that. Those sins are remembered no more. He says, there's my son. And he walks in the righteousness of Christ. The hardest thing for me to fully comprehend is that. Lord, you don't remember my sins anymore. How could I be the righteousness of Christ? And while theologically I may understand it and may be able to articulate it, practically, Satan reminds me every day, you're a piece of dirt. And I have to find myself saying so many times, I'm a son of God. You got a problem? Take it up with my father. Don't take it up with me. He has declared me right, not me. 
If you're not in Christ, if you don't know God experientially, it doesn't matter how much you know of him. God calls you to know him personally. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.